0: Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com.
1: Welcome to the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature.
2: We have less wild places on the planet every single day. If we protect the indigenous rights of indigenous peoples, then we're gonna be able to protect more of the wild places on the planet while we can, while they're still thriving, while they're still providing a way of life for the people.
0: It's all alive, it's all connected, it's all intelligent, it's all relatives.
1: We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet, creating a future environment of hope. The most ancient wisdom on Earth comes from the world's old growth cultures. The original instructions of indigenous peoples were complemented by knowledge they gained empirically over millennia as guardians of the biological diversity of their ancient homelands. Using traditional ecological knowledge, TEK, or tech of a different sort, First Peoples have successfully managed the complex reciprocal relationships between biological and human cultures. Yet no prior human civilization has ever faced globalized ecological collapse, and both traditional tech and high-tech will be essential. And in the face of the unprecedented pressures on their homelands and ways of life, this generation of North American indigenous leaders is finding new ways to organize, to protect the environment, and spread their knowledge for the sake of all life on Earth and future generations
2: whether it was an editorial, a lawsuit, an opinion article, a a video documentary, a PSA on TV or on the radio, a live presentation, testimony in D.C. I did everything I possibly could. And local Indian activists went out to the land and were
3: engaging in direct action against the logging companies.
0: And I think it was really that voice of the youth that ended up being able to bring people together.
1: This is Formless Warriors, 21st century wisdom from old growth cultures with Ine Begay, Dune Lankard, and Hawk Rosales. My name is Neil Harvey, I'll be your host. Welcome to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. The Eak are an Athabaskan native tribe in Alaska. For millennia, they lived sustainably, hunting, fishing, and gathering along a 300-mile stretch of the Gulf of Alaska called the Copper River Delta.
2: The season of animals that we've harvested historically are the moose and the deer, the bear, the goats, all the different salmon species, pinks, chums, kings, reds, silvers, So it was just an overabundance of wealth from the land and the sea.
1: That's Dune Lankard, member of the EAC Traditional Elders Council and founder of the EAC Preservation Trust. He says that the traditional EAC way of life began to change in the
2: 1880s. When the canneries brought in all of the Americans, it led to tuberculosis, influenza, smallpox, alcohol and drug abuse. Out of 300 living EACs by 1880, within 20 years, by 1907, when they built the railroads into the region to the Kennecott copper mines, there was only about 60 full bloods left. And then by 1964, when Dr. Michael Krauss, the anthropologic linguist from the University of Alaska, documented the IAC language, he was only able to find six full-bloods, one of them my grandma, who is uh, Ataki, which means little ent. And she was the one who taught me about the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act and limited entry and how the government was taking our subsistence and our fin fish from us.
1: In the 1970s, two government policies forever changed the lives of Alaska's natives. The Limited Entry Permit Plan was designed to save Alaska's wild salmon fisheries, but it sold fishing rights to Native and non-Native individuals without respect to traditional fishing grounds or subsistence practices. The discovery of oil in Prudhoe Bay was another blow to Native subsistence. In order to clear the way for construction of the oil pipeline from the Arctic Circle to the Port of Valdez, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act was signed into law in 1971. Native claims to almost all of the state were extinguished in exchange for approximately one-ninth of the state's land plus $960 million in compensation distributed to 200 local village and 13 native-owned regional corporations. This act put land use decisions into the hands of native corporations.
2: And these native corporations decided to start clear-cutting all of our ancestral lands.
1: Dune Lankard was working as a commercial fisherman when the Exxon Valdez spilled millions of gallons of oil in Prince William Sound. Lankard spoke about his path to environmental activism at a recent Bioneers conference.
2: And in my region, there was a plan to level one million acres from Cordova to Kodiak, which was the parallel path of the Exxon Valley's oil spill. And so I sat down with my friends and family and said, well, how can the salmon industry maintain itself as being one of the top industries if we clear cut the same exact path of the nation's worst oil spill? And a lot of people said, well, what can you do about it? Progress is inevitable. People need trees. There's nothing we can do. And we felt that we needed an economic alternative to actually figure out a way to purchase the timber harvesting rights from the native corporations. And so we lobbied Exxon for a $2 billion court settlement. And to make a long story short, we ended up getting a billion dollars, and we were able to purchase the timber rights from 13 different native corporations, preserving 700,000 acres in the spill zone.
1: Dune Lankard sought to preserve EAC culture and salmon habitat by exceptionally skillful and imaginative means.
2: What I did was I I became a formless warrior, so nobody knew which form I would appear in, which venue, whether it was an editorial, a lawsuit, uh, an opinion article, a video documentary, a PSA on TV or on the radio, a live presentation, testimony in D.C. I did everything I possibly could and which I found was the most effective were the paper arrows, which were draft lawsuits that I would give to people and say, if you don't do the right thing, then I'm probably gonna have to sue you. And then they would come to their wisdom and they would try and figure out how not to get sued and do the right thing.
1: Going against the tide, Lankard was often ostracized.
2: That was difficult for me to be shunned by my native and, and fisherman fellows, but I realized that I had to do it, and then when I started suing my native corporations to demand a shareholder vote to decide between conservation over development, I was probably the most hated native in the state for seven consecutive years.
1: Lankard eventually won an Alaska Supreme Court victory that allowed the case to be heard by the state superior court. He says it was worth it because the trees are still growing and the salmon are still jumping. Lankard's efforts to preserve his beloved Copper River Delta are part of a larger global movement gaining momentum throughout the Americas and worldwide. For instance, the Indigenous Environmental Network, a leading indigenous coalition, empowers quote, indigenous nations and communities towards sustainable livelihoods, demanding environmental justice and maintaining the sacred fire of their traditions.
2: The EAC dream is that when we close our eyes, that we see the salmon, and we talk to Willitney, which is our salmon goddess. And so we send our prayers out, hoping that the salmon will find their way home. And so I feel that it's my job, in my role, while being on this planet during this time, that I do everything I can to remain connected to that dream and make sure that people know that there's a different way to live, and that we can do it in harmony and balance and still have a lot of fun, and for some people make a lot of money, but really appreciate and respect how amazing this place is and what it does for people.
1: Yak leader, Dune Lankard. About 3,700 kilometers south of the Copper River Delta is the Four Corners area in the southwestern United States, homeland of both the Hopi and Navajo nations.
0: I grew up living between one of the largest strip mining operations in the U.S. and a whole slew of abandoned uranium mines. And that's a small community called Kienta on the Navajo reservation.
1: Ine Begay of the Diné, or Navajo, and Tohono O'odham nations left the reservation to study land and water management at Stanford University. Upon her return, she helped build the Black Mesa Water Coalition to address issues of energy and water exploitation on native lands.
0: Right next to where I lived, this largest strip mining operation, Peabody Coal Company is digging up all of this coal. And they're not only digging up the coal, they're digging up the water mining our water, and they are mixing our sole source of drinking water, this is water that I grew up drinking, they were mixing that with crushed coal and sending it in a pipeline 270 miles to a power plant in Nevada.
1: The coal mine began operations in 1968 at Black Mesa, sacred land to both the Navajo and Hopi. The elders speak of Black Mesa as a female.
0: And our elders say that where Peabody Coal Mine has been digging, they've been digging up her liver. They've been digging up that organ, which is her ability to cleanse herself. And the water that they've been pumping from her, that's her lifeblood that they've been taking.
1: Strip mining not only threatens community water resources, it denudes the earth of trees and vegetation in the process of removing tons upon tons of, quote, waste rock to reach the coal below.
0: This coal mine, not only is it having environmental impacts, it's also caused major social impacts. Because traditionally, the Navajo people have lived together peacefully. When that coal mine came in, it created the idea of whoever owns the land gets the money for the resource. So the U.S. government decided we couldn't figure out for ourselves who owns what land, and so they arbitrarily, (laughs) supposedly arbitrarily, drew the line. Where they supposedly arbitrarily drew the line required the relocation of hundreds of Navajo families, the relocations of Hopi families as well.
1: Although many elders had stood up against relocation from the beginning, Native community members were divided over economic and environmental issues. It took energetic, young activists like Ine Begay and the Black Mesa Water Coalition to articulate a common vision that could bring the Navajo and Hopi back together.
0: We were an organization of young Navajo and Hopi people, which hadn't happened. There was a Hopi organization and a Navajo organization that were working, but there's no connection and so we would hold community meetings in Hopi and in Navajo and trying to get people to understand that the water underneath us was being used and it doesn't know this line it doesn't know the boundaries between Navajo and Hopi it's all of our water and we would get yelled at by Navajo people that we shouldn't be working with Hopis not to trust them the Hopis would yell at our Hopi members that they shouldn't trust the Navajos so we just kept going And I think it was really that voice of the youth that ended up being able to bring people together.
1: Peabody coal mine operated for 36 years. Environmental justice advocates around the world celebrated its closure at the end of 2005. But local Navajo and Hopi communities were left to deal with the environmental, economic, and cultural devastation. Again, young indigenous leaders stepped up.
0: We realized we need to come up with a plan to be proactive. And we started this Just Transition campaign. And the Just Transition campaign is a way to try and get clean and sustainable economy that's environmentally friendly, that works within our culture, that can be a transition off of our dependency, our tribal dependency on coal mining. If you've ever been to the Navajo reservation, there's a lot of wind and there's a lot of sun. So we're trying to get community-owned wind and solar projects, plants going, that can support local energy use. Then the excess energy can be sold to the grid, particularly in this case to California. Californians can get clean energy, and that income can go back into our communities for investment in community-based credit unions or community businesses and things like that.
1: From energy and mining to fisheries and forests, The Indigenous Environmental Network has worked since 1991 to support local programs and initiatives created by indigenous leaders like Ine Begay and Dune Lankard, who live with these tragedies of daily destruction up close and personal. Because they know the horror, they're unshakably committed to creating sustainable solutions. More when we return. This is Formless Warriors. 21st-century wisdom from old-growth cultures. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature.
0: (laughs) ¶¶¶¶
3: (tries) we ya so the saying saying hey
1: You can download this and other programs on the radio pages at www.bioneers.org. From the sun and wind of Navajo and Hopi country in the southwestern United States to the lush rainforests of the Cinqueon on the far northern California coast.
3: We have elk, we have deer, we have black bear, we have mountain lions. You have riverine valleys along the eel, the South Fork Eel and the upper Matole that are alluvial flats with a tremendous diversity of plants and animals. We have three or four species of ferns. We have tons of understory plants that are specific just to the understory redwood ecology. I believe there are martens, fishers, coho salmon, chinook salmon. So this is a place of tremendous diversity. Uh, Many different kinds of acorn-bearing oak trees that the Inam people use for sustenance and still do today. And then, of course, as you get along the coastline, there are tremendous marine resources, including many kinds of seaweeds and shellfishes and and rockfish and so
1: forth, sea lions, sea mammals. Hock Rosales is executive director of Intertribal Cinqueon Wilderness Council. A nonprofit conservation consortium of 10 local tribes formed to re establish indigenous stewardship in the region. Decades of clear cut logging destroyed thousands of acres of old growth forests and severely reduced native salmon runs. I think the best word to use to characterize it is uh, ecocide.
3: It is a kind of genocide in the indigenous view because all of the plants and animals are our relations. So when we treat them that way, it is really death to those systems which we depend upon for our life and our well-being.
1: Native people had been the stewards of the Sinkion territory for thousands of years until the arrival of white settlers in the mid-1800s. As everywhere in California, native ways of life were systematically destroyed when the state sanctioned bounty hunters to hunt them down for rich rewards. Pushed from their homelands, the people were further decimated by disease. Then began the plunder of natural resources in pursuit of wealth. In the mid-1900s, timber was king, and the goal on both public and private lands was to get the cutout.
3: Along the coastal Sinkion holdings, and I, I believe probably within the Sinkion territory at large, there is approximately 2.5% of old growth that was left standing.
1: But in the early 1980s, non-Native environmental activists began to sound the alarm about logging's devastating effects on the whole watershed, and they began to engage in direct action to try to stop it. Somewhere
3: in those early stages, there was a discussion about how the local Native peoples felt about all of this. There was a consciousness that these early Back to the Landers had that other white people had not had yet and that was a sense that the native people had lived there for thousands of years and they had a desire to respect that and to reach out and talk with those people and to see if they could learn about how to take care of the land in a better way. So contacts were made and local Indian activists went out to the land and were engaging in direct action against the logging companies, Georgia Pacific, and against the state of California. They were chaining themselves to trees. They were occupying the Sinqueon
1: land. The assault on ancient forests catalyzed Indian activism and community collaboration to halt clear-cut logging in the Sally Bell Grove, a stand of old-growth trees named for a survivor of the Sinqueon genocide in the mid-1800s. A coalition of Native and non-Native groups filed a lawsuit claiming that private timber companies and state forestry agents failed to obey the California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA. In 1985, they won a landmark ruling that revised the entire process for the approval of timber harvest plans throughout the state. The Sally Bell Grove was saved. Subsequently, Georgia Pacific sold more than 7,000 acres in Sinkion Coastal Territory. A coalition of environmental groups secured half the acreage and added it to the coastal Sin Wilderness State Park. But the fate of the remaining upland 3,900 acres was unknown. At that moment in time this
3: intertribal Tribal Wilderness Council was formed. It was established specifically to secure that upland parcel and to create by that acquisition the first intertribal Indian wilderness area in the U.S. that would be dedicated to cultural conservation and restoration.
1: The Wilderness Council now holds and manages this land. Conservation easements permanently protect it from development and industrial use. For local native people, it is particularly significant that they've returned to this land after being removed forcibly from it.
3: But I think what's most important is that it has resulted in empowerment for our communities. It has had an effect on the well-being of the community in that they feel a lot of community pride. We do not allow drugs or alcohol on this land, and it's a place for healing. It is also a place where many of the things that were taken can be returned as well spiritually, including, sometimes, the religious beliefs, and the songs, and the dances. All of those things are huge to us. And I think they're huge to mankind, to humanity, overall. Because we want people to learn from the example of community empowerment. Anyone can do this. It isn't easy, but anyone can do this. What we've done. I'm not sure if I am hopeful or pessimistic about the future. I see this time as a as a time of testing for all of us. And it's up to us to, to prepare ourselves for the worst, but also to understand that we are capable of doing wonderful things. So that's the faith and the hope that keeps me going on a daily basis. And I know that many others feel the same way
0: to understand what it is to depend on one another. I think that's something that's very much a part of being an indigenous person, our responsibility to one another, to your community. The selflessness, I guess, might be one way of describing it.
2: The Indigenous peoples are people who for thousands of years have inhabited certain regions and have found a way to survive without destroying it in order to live. So as long as we're defining and defending our sovereignty, we're defining and defending our subsistence way of life, we're defining and defending our spirituality, then these wild places will exist.
1: Indigenous leaders Hawk Rosales, Ine Begay, and Dune Lankard, defending indigenous cultures and restoring the land. Helping us remember that we were all indigenous to a place not so many generations ago. Inviting us all to re-indigenize ourselves to our common home, Mother Earth. To become formless warriors to honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. Formless warriors, 21st century wisdom from old growth cultures.  ¶¶¶¶ Downloads of this program and many other Bioneers radio shows are available on the radio pages at www.bioneers.org or by calling 1-877-BIONEER. That's 1-877-246-6337. Visit Bioneers.org, where you can learn how to attend the annual October Bioneers National Conference and local beaming Bioneers conferences. Purchase the radio series, conference CDs and DVDs, and Bioneers books. Join the thriving online Bioneers community and become a Bioneers member or make a donation. All at Bioneers.org or by calling 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Catherine Stifter and Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Production management, Aaron Leventman and Chuck Castleberry. Station relations by Creative PR. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Original recordings provided by Reference Media Group. Interview recording engineer, Jeff Westman. Special thanks to Carol Hoover and Laura Spann for the EAC song. DeMay Roberts at Media Rights and Carson Bell at the California Library of Natural Sounds at the Oakland Museum of California for nature recordings. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Ryko Disc label. Additional music was made available by Silver Wave Records at silverwave.com. For more music information, please visit pioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the Underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 0409.
0: Pioneer's Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com.